0: Hello, Upper Room family. This is Chris Seedman. I serve as pastor of the Branch Church. I'm a longtime friend of Michael and Larissa Miller's and a huge fan of what God is doing in the work of the Upper Room. It was my privilege to share a word with the Upper Room in this weekend's services. And so that's what you're about to hear. It's from John chapter 20. You know, belief is a journey. And sometimes it takes a while for realities when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's all about to really sink into the core of who you are. Don't give up on that journey. You'll hear more about this journey in this message. God bless you, and I pray it blesses your heart. And I'm so blessed to be here this morning. If you would open up your bibles to John chapter 20, that's where we'll be in just a second. John chapter 20. I know a lot of you by the way are praying for Jason Boley and his wife Laura. I got a great report at 954 in fact. By the way, Jason Boley was one of those with Michael Miller on our living room floor in 2005 at 135 Newport in Coppell, Texas, where we still live today. Praise God is right. And Jason's wife of course I was blessed to have a child last weekend, but there have been some complications. Sepsis set in this past week, she's at Baylor. It's been a dire situation. Last night, Michael led us all in prayer for her as circulation and pulse needed to return to her extremities at 9.54 this morning while we're in worship. Jason Boley texted and let us know that a pulse has been detected in her extremities and blood flow is beginning to run. And so I want you to pray with me right now. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray right now that you would continue your work, that you would continue your work, Lord, and release the full circulation to her extremities, Lord. We pray that you would drive out in Jesus' name every form of sepsis throughout her body in Jesus' name. We know there's no sepsis in heaven, and you teach us to pray for things to be on earth as they are in heaven. And so, Lord, we ask for things to be on earth as they are in heaven in her body, that she will not depart from this earth until she's old, old and full of years, having fully served your purpose for her in her generation, according to the word of Acts 13. And while we're at it, Lord, we just go ahead. And we summon the faces of people we know and love who are suffering that are not with us this morning. We're mindful that they don't have to be with us in order for you to move in response to the prayers of your saints. That you healed uh, the royal official son in John 4 who was in another town when he sought you. You healed the centurion servant in Luke chapter 7 when he was in another town when he sought you. And Lord, we ask for your wholeness to come to every face that summons in our mind and our spirits right now. While we're at it, we ask for salvation to come. For every lost person that's now summoned before us in our mind and our heart, everyone who's still at the corner of fifth and bedpost this morning, everyone who, who is waking up in regret and shame, everyone who is now in full tilt, embracement of the futility of a way of operating in life, And it's crumbling around them. Lord, we pray for the revelation of Jesus this morning to meet them where they're at. And in the mighty name of Jesus, the church says, amen. And amen, praise the Lord, amen. So I I just, I've been in Alabama for a, a few days. I've got a dear friend who used to pastor in Alabama. He just recently passed away. His name was Josh Patrick. Josh came to faith in Jesus as a young man in a very difficult context. He very much felt the call of God on his life uh, very early upon coming to Jesus, and he decided he wanted to give his life to being a pastor. And so in the small town in Alabama where he grew up, there was an older gentleman who was a lifelong preacher who heard about his desire to be a pastor, and. Uh, he reached out to Josh. Josh affectionately called him Brother Bob. He reached out to Brother Bob. And, and, uh, and bro- after Brother Bob reached out to him and Brother Bob said, I understand that you feel called to be a pastor. I'm willing to allow you to shadow me for a little while so you can learn how to be a pastor. And so Josh said, great. And so whenever Brother Bob would read the gospel with a seeker, whenever Brother Bob would do a hospital visit, uh, whenever Brother Bob would do a marriage, Josh was always there. One occasion, Brother Bob reached out to Josh and said, Josh, I want you to come with me and you're gonna do something with me that you've never done before. You haven't been with me when I've done a funeral before. I was called to, to do a funeral for a church I used to regularly pastor at. The local pastor can't do it. I'm gonna do the funeral. I know this woman. I want you to come with me. So put on your, your the best clothes and come with me. And so Josh piles into Brother Bob's 88 Oldsmobile. And they make their way to this small country church outside of a small town in Alabama, beautiful red brick building, white columns, steeple. And they walk in and Brother Bob says to Josh, you're gonna join me on the stage. And on the stage there was a mini pew, (laughs) kind of a church love seat, where two people can sit, you know. And I want you to join me on the pew up there and we're gonna look out on everyone and I want you praying while I do the funeral just praying quietly for the people, and then when I get done, you're gonna pray to close the funeral, and Josh says, okay, and so Brother Bob stands up, and he starts into his eulogy, and Josh knows about five minutes into the eulogy, he notices people look bewildered. They look a little confused. Some of them even look agitated, and Josh doesn't quite know what to make of it because it's his first time to be in a funeral looking at the faces of people. Normally, he's looking at the back of people's heads, kind of where you're seated right now. But he sees all these faces of bewilderment and confusion and frustration, but he just begins to think it must be grief. This must be how grief looks like when I'm looking at, you know? And so he tries to dismiss it, and Brother Bob just continues to continue. And in the middle of the eulogy, Brother Bob says, let's bow our heads and pray. Brother Bob bows his head. Everybody bows their head. He starts to pray a little bit, and then he goes quiet. Josh has his head bowed. The next thing Josh knows Brother Bob has grabbed his hand and has yanked him off the pew and takes him quickly down the stairs out an exit door right beside the stage. And Josh is like, Brother Ob, what's going on? What's going on? And Brother Bob's like, get in the car. I'll explain everything in just a second. Just get in the car. They pile into the Oldsmobile 88 and peel off. And Josh is like, Brother Bob, what's going on? Brother Bob screams, it's Sister Shubel. Josh goes, I know, Sister Shubel, you've been eulogizing her. I know it's Sister Shubel. He goes, Sister Shubel sitting on the fourth row. (laughs) And Josh is like, what do you mean Sister Shubel sitting on the fourth row? She's in the casket. And Brother Bob says, no, she's not in the casket. She's on the fourth row. I don't know who's in the caskets. Brother Bob did what we all do when we don't know what to do. He ran. And to this day, Josh still doesn't know what happened with that funeral. Now there are two options with what went on in Josh Patrick's first funeral that he witnessed from that vantage point. One is, is that Brother Bob was up there eulogizing Sister Shubel when in fact it was Sister Swanson that was in the caskets. He misunderstood who it was when they contacted him on the phone. And Sister Swanson and Sister Schubel, their, their, their last names both start with S. They both sound alike. But close, it may count in hand grenades and horseshoes. Close does not count when you're doing a funeral. It doesn't count when you're doing a wedding. It was Sister Swanson that had passed away. Or another option could be this, that Sister Shubel was back from the dead and nobody was buying that option. Don't you wonder how many people were asking, what is happening in the middle of that prayer? i tell you that simply story simply to say, right now we're at a time in the Christian calendar that's very much a time 2,000 years ago where a lot of people were asking, what is happening? There's a span of about 40 days after Jesus had arisen from the dead when he made these post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. So many of them are recorded in each one of the gospels and one of the things you notice when you go through all of these appearances is the journey of belief that the disciples are on. There is a vacillating that happens. There is a struggling to believe it with all of their hearts, no matter how much tangible, empirical evidence is right in front of them. Even in Matthew 28, at the end of the gospel, where Jesus gives the great commission, Matthew writes, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. And a lot of these appearances are recorded in the Gospels for a lot of reasons, but one of which is that for you and me to see ourselves in this journey, that belief is very much a journey. This is why Jude closes in Jude verse 22 by saying, be merciful to those who doubt. Not be condescending, not be cynical, not be sarcastic, man, Kevin, What he heard from the Lord is so right on that it's not this, it's this. Where Jesus himself says to the disciples, reach out, put your hand into my side, he says to Thomas. See my hands, see my feet. It's not this, it's this. It's a journey of belief because even after they had that experience, some were still doubting. Now, there's a philosopher by the name of Michael Novak who says there are uh, be- belief operates at three levels in your life, three different levels of conviction in your life. The first is this. Uh, there are people who have public convictions. Public convictions is the stuff that you say you believe but you don't really believe. It's the stuff you say you believe, but that you know you don't believe, but you say you believe it in order to get the job, or to get elected, or to get the girl, or to keep the peace at the first family holiday that you're a part of as an in-law. There are public convictions. That's the stuff we say we believe externally, but we know we don't really believe, but we say it for an ulterior motive. A second level of belief is called private convictions. Private convictions is the stuff you say you believe that you think you believe with all of your heart, but it hasn't been tested yet. The strength of the belief hasn't been tested yet. You think you believe it with all of your heart, but it hasn't been tested yet. An example of this would be uh, when I was 26, 27, I would look at other parents in our church and how they were relating to their kids in times of discipline, and I, or I would look at that and internally I would judge them and I would think, man, when I'm a dad, I'll never do that. And I believed it with all of my heart, but I hadn't been tested yet. There's a third level of belief. It's what's called core convictions. Core convictions is the stuff you really believe and you, you know you really believe it because you're already responding to it. You are defaulting to it in how you're living your life right now. An example of a core conviction would be gravity. Some of you believe in gravity so strongly, you are repelled at the thought of looking over the edge of a building. You don't even have to tell yourself believe in gravity. You're automatically living in light of it. Some of us believe in gravity so strongly we drive across a bridge and we drive over the double yellow line in the middle of the bridge. We just default to it. Core conviction is revealed by how you're currently living, how you're currently living in reality, in your body is a revelation of what you really truly believe at your core. Now listen. Be merciful to yourself. It takes some time often for this journey with Jesus to make its way down from a public conviction to a private conviction to a core conviction. One of the beautiful things about this culture is you have a core conviction about pursuing the manifest presence of God. It's not just a public thing. And it's more than a private because you've already been tested and you're still living into it. It is core. I wanna take you now to one of these post-resurrection appearance stories in the hopes that it's just making its way down a little more into your core. Picking up in John chapter 20 and verse 11 is where we're gonna be. John 20 and verse 11. as we look at the story of a woman named Mary Magdalene. John 20 and verse 11, Mary had her demons, literally. In Luke chapter eight you find out that her whole journey with Jesus begins with Jesus delivering her from a team of the oppression of seven demons. She follows Jesus from that point on, but now she's at his tomb. That Sunday morning, she's the first to discover the empty tomb. It's not even an option in her mind that he's risen from the dead. She thinks his body's been moved and she's weeping at the tomb. John 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying As she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. This exchange is amazing to me. The first encounter with the tomb, angels aren't in there. It's just empty, and she's just fractured by it. Where have they put Jesus? Now, the second encounter of the tomb, she sees two angels the next time she looks in there, but she's not fractured at all by the conversation. This is amazing to me. If I saw two angels just first, I might lose control of my bladder. But she sees two angels, they ask her a question, and she just answers it. She's not thrown off by it at all. Why? Could it be that she's so preoccupied with her Lord and where he is that the presence of angels doesn't even throw her off her game? What's even more amazing is she calls him my Lord still, when he's pretty much nobody's Lord at this moment. He's been rejected by her religious leaders All of his disciples but one deserted him at the cross. Rome has pronounced him public enemy number one. Nobody's claiming Jesus, and even he has departed from her expectations because she probably was thinking what they all were thinking. He's come, and he's our new Moses, and he's gonna be here to kick some Roman rear. And now he's wound up in the one place none of us ever expected him to wind up, on a cross instead of a throne and everybody's gone, and even though he's departed from her expectations and her job descriptions, he is still her Lord. I know people who've refused to claim Jesus for less. He's still her Lord, though her view of him is skewed because she thinks he's dead. He's still her Lord. You know, it's possible for him to be your Lord and still have your view of him skewed. Let's read on. Verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Man, I love this whole exchange. She, she's in the presence of Jesus, and she doesn't know it. You just stop right there. Did you know it's possible to be in the presence of Jesus and not know it? A lot of people think, oh, I would know it if I were in the presence of Jesus. The Bible would beg to differ, this may be one of the earliest episodes of Undercover Boss, I know, <laughs> because here he is, the one with all authority, the one with all authority, and she doesn't recognize him for who he is. That's pretty much truth out Scripture. You can go back to Genesis where Jacob says, of Bethel, he says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. In a lot of the post-resurrection appearances, they don't recognize Jesus for who he is at first. When Jesus saunters up beside the two dudes on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, they didn't recognize him at that moment. When, When Jesus is cooking breakfast for the disciples in John 21, they see him on the shore. They don't know it's him. You can be in the presence of Jesus and not know it. That's why there's so much to be said for, Lord, open our eyes open the ears of our heart, dig out the ears of our heart as Isaiah prays. In Isaiah chapter 51, she thinks he's the gardener and she stays on message. I just, I just tell me where you've put him. Tell me where you've put him. They've taken his body. Tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. This captivates me, too, because Jesus is seen as passive. Jesus is somebody that you move his body around, and where did you put him? And tell me where he is, and I'll go get him, and I'll carry him over here, because when you think Jesus is dead, you can move him around any way you want. When you're relating to Jesus, as though he's a dead historical figure, You can get him and move him and put him around and manage him. You can slice and dice and cut and decide what part of the Gospels you like and what part of the Gospels you don't. This is what Thomas Jefferson did when he produced his own version of the Bible and took out all the miracle stories. Because Jesus was a historical figure but was a dead figure and when he's dead, you can move him around, you can manage, you can go and get him. Put him places. Sometimes people don't want to cut out the miracles. Sometimes they want to cut out what he says about greed or pride or how to deal with their enemies. Hmm. When we relate to Jesus as though is dead, that's when we have position to then manage him. And before you know it, you're out following a Jesus you've created in your own image rather than following the Jesus who seeks to recreate you in his. Mm. Mary wants to get him, but she's the one about to be gotten. She thinks he's the gardener. He's not really, but he is, but he's not. But he is, but he's not. You go, Chris, what do you mean? Here's what I mean by him being the gardener. What I mean is, think about where this all went wrong. This all went wrong in a garden. That's where sin is introduced, where alienation from God is introduced, where death is introduced in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3. And then Jesus shows up, and his first place of manifesting himself is in a garden, In fact, in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3, he also talks about thorns and thistles being a consequence of the fall. And then he shows up at the cross and he's wearing a crown of thorns. We sang about that. Beautiful song God has just given them. That even on the cross, he's taking on the curse that was pronounced at the garden. And then in a garden, he's manifesting that, oh, by the way, I have authority over the consequence of the curse that was death. There's more going on here, though. Keep reading, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now she recognizes him. Why does she recognize him? Probably because he calls her by her name. Remember, Jesus said earlier in John chapter 10, he talks about his sheep, he knows his sheep by name. He calls them and they listen to his voice. Here's what's so encouraging about this. You can have a skewed view of Jesus and you can still be a sheep. you can have a skewed view of Jesus and still hear his voice. On the flip side, you can hear the vo- view of Jesus, hear the voice of Jesus and still have a skewed view of him. He says, Mary. And she says, Rabboni. The whole time she's thought he's dead, but she never ceased to be his sheep. Be merciful to those who doubt. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, oh I love this, because for the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking in very intimate terms with his disciples. He calls his disciples his friends back in John 15, but now he's kicked it up a notch, having come out of the tomb and says, my God, your God, my Father, your Father, you go and tell my brothers that I am ascending. Something has happened. They don't fully understand it, but something has happened in his death. A slate has been wiped clean. Jesus says, I'm ascending to my God and your God, to my Father and to your Father. You go tell my brothers. He's recognizing there's been a change in the relational status. Stop right here now. Now let's think about this. In, he's ascending. Where is he ascending? Well, he's ascending to the right hand of God. What does he do at the right hand of God? He's seated at the right hand of God. Amen? Give you a verse for that. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The apostle Paul tells believers He says, to set your mind on things above, and then he qualifies that, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is where he presently is, and part of being a believer is learning to view Jesus in this way, that he has ascended and he's seated. Okay, you say, all right, Seedman, well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Think about what you're doing when you sit down. Sometimes when you sit down, you're sitting down and resting because a job has been completed. When I was 16, I was halfway done mowing the lawn, I came in to get a drink of water, I sat down and watched ESPN for an hour. My dad walked in and said, what are you doing sitting there, you're not finished. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work was done in that regard. Does he not say in John 19, 30, it is, it is, it is, is." and now that he's finished with that work for our forgiveness and our redemption, he sits down at the right hand of God. Sits down at the right hand of God. This is a huge, huge thing he's saying. All this talk about him being the gardener just brings to mind he really is the gardener. He has dealt with the weeds of alienation and sin and death in many respects. He's dealt with it. By the way, you know, Eden, Garden of Eden, Eden means delight. That tells you something about the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord was for human beings to experience delight in this realm. God did not strictly create you just to go to heaven. He created Adam and Eve and put them on earth, and there was a time when heaven and earth, in one sense, were as one. When Jesus is dying on the cross, what does he say to the thief on the cross in Luke 23? He says, today you will be with me in... The only other time that word paradise is used in all the Greek version of the Bible is in Genesis chapter two to describe Eden. Jesus is saying something here. I'm addressing where it all went wrong. In sin and alienation and death at the cross, I'm addressing where it all went wrong and now that this work is finished, I'm sitting down, I'm ascending. You know, a lot of sociologists and historians will tell you maybe the most revolutionary development that made human history and development possible over time was really gardening and farming. If you're into a garden, this is bonus for you here. I would have thought they'd say something else. But they said, no, it's gardening and farming, because for For a long time, human beings were, in many ways, they were nomadic because they were hunters and gatherers. And yes, Adam and Eve were put in the garden to tend it and to bring it to a harvest. I understand all that word, but there was this trajectory too where people are hunting and gathering after they leave Eden. They're running further and further east of Eden. You can follow that in Genesis, Tower of Babel, other key stories. They keep reminding you how east of Eden human beings are moving. They're nomads, hunting, gathering, but here's what's crazy. In the world of gardening and farming, people began to figure out if I sowed a seed here and you had some sun and some water, life would come from it and I could eat from that life. Here's what that meant. That means I could stay in one place. I didn't always have to be moving around. I could stay in one place. I could build a home and others could stay in one place and they could build a home right next to me. And together we have a village and we have community. And when you have a village and when you have community, you begin to have conversation. And when you begin to have conversation, you begin to have collaboration. And when you have collaboration, you begin to have innovation and the development of technology and so on and so forth. Gardening, farming, farming. You say, Chris, what's your point? My point is this Jesus really is the ultimate gardener because he made it possible for all of us to stop running. Yes. Yeah. To stop running from our past, to stop running in judgment of others in a way of trying to find resolution for our past, to stop running into forms of medicating ourselves to try and find peace with our past. Jesus made it possible for us to stop running, to begin to dwell. In the presence of the Lord. So powerful. So powerful. This is why the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament is laid out the way it is. If you remember, when you read in the Old Testament, the the most, the most holy place is the westernmost point of the tabernacle. You enter into the tabernacle from the east. Why? Because it's from the east side of the garden that Adam and Eve left. And you always return to God by going back and revisiting the place where you left him. And so you enter in the tabernacle from the east and you walk in the tabernacle. And one of the things, by the way, you notice about the tabernacle is there are no chairs in the tabernacle. Why? Because a priest's work is never done, he's always atoning for the sins of the people. So there's no time to ever sit. But this priest finally sits because it is finished. Then you go deeper into the tabernacle and there's a curtain that separates you from the most holy place. And on that curtain, it's animal skin, about 18 inches, 24 inches thick. On that curtain is engraved. you wanna guess what's engraved? The tree of life from the Garden of Eden and cherubim, the guards. Now one day a year in the Old Testament, a high priest could go behind that curtain and make atonement for the sins of Israel. I'll return there in just a second. Because we're not done. Because there's more to him ascending to be seated than just this. Ascending means he's completed one stage of his work, but now he's moved to another stage. He's moving from redeeming to interceding at the right hand of God. Hebrews 7 through 9. And when he talks about ascending, yeah, in Acts one, he'll ascend before them, but there's more that's going on than just him ascending before them. If I were to talk about somebody climbing a corporate ladder in this room, I, I wouldn't expect to come downtown Dallas one day and see you climbing a ladder on the 14th floor of your cubicle. It's language to describe somebody is moving up a chain of authority. When Jesus says ascending, I am moving up the chain of authority. I am ascending to the right hand of my Father in heaven. Here's the deal. And my Father is your Father and my God is your God. What's the point? The point is you've got a brother in a very high place. And so part of growing up in Jesus is learning how to set my mind on where he is and live and pray in light of it in this realm to where it makes its way from a public conviction to a private conviction to a core conviction to where I begin living out of that instinctively, default mode. Less than 48 hours ago, we were in Atlanta and a, a woman was hit by a Tesla. Just It nudged her but she fell over, hit her head on the pavement, there's blood everywhere. My wife and I were coming out of a wedding and my wife comes over there She's already receiving medical attention and my wife moves in in this beautiful dress she's in and kneels beside her and just quietly prays for her and soothes her and I'm like, give her some space, give her some space, give her, you know, and my wife's just there and I'm like, they're gonna tell you to get away. Nobody told my wife to get away. But look at her, I wouldn't tell her to get away either. (laughs) And it occurred to me while I'm on the outside, what is she doing? It occurred to me, oh, this is just core to her. She's living like she believes he's seated. And so she's beside her on the ground in the blood, not yelling at her, just quietly rubbing her back, soothing her, and praying for her while the medical authorities are doing what they're doing to help restore her. She couldn't help herself. It's just core. It's just core. Now, him being seated means sometimes he views things from a different perspective than you do. (laughs) And part of growing up in him is learning to join him in his perspective because I still have in mind the things of men in my life. Jesus changes Peter's name from Simon to Peter. Peter means rock in one story. He says, you've heard correctly, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, amen? Peter heard that in Matthew 16. You ever looked at the next story? Then Jesus takes Peter aside, I'm gonna suffer, and I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna kill and raise to life, and Peter takes Jesus aside and says, no, no, you got the wrong job description. And he rebukes Jesus. Because he's like, you're the Messiah, but you have the wrong job description, Jesus. And what does Jesus say that? Get thee behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men and not the things of God. Watch this. Peter has made a confession because he heard from the Holy Spirit of who he is. But in the very next story, Peter is hearing from Satan. You can hear both voices. And even Peter is having to grow up and to embrace the job description the Father has given Jesus and burn up his own. And so part of him being seated high and lifted up is that sometimes he just sees things from a different perspective and I'm called to pray and to live in light of that. But I have a brother in the highest place and I hold on to that. And Mary, we return to her story, she starts living like it. Mary starts living like he has all the authority. She takes off to follow his instructions. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now notice how Mary's message has undergone a rewrite. Three different times in John 20, she keeps saying, where have they put Jesus? They've taken him somewhere. Where have they put Jesus? Now she's seen the Lord, and she has a different message. I've seen the Lord. Watch this. There are times when even we as messengers are spreading with great passion one message about Jesus that isn't true and we're repeating it over and over and over and it takes seeing him again in order for us to rewrite our message. This happens to, this happens to preachers and pastors all the time because you can diligently search the scriptures because by them you think you have eternal life as Jesus said in John five thirty seven, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life? And it's possible to know the message and miss the Messiah. And so then you're running around with great passion about the message that has no true Messiah in it. But again, be merciful. We're all on this journey. She says, I've seen the Lord. Her message has undergone a rewrite. This is powerful. She is the first evangelist of Easter. A lot of you know this. She's the first evangelist of Easter. Mary, a woman who once had been filled with darkness, possessed by seven demons. Jesus sends her first. He's something even better than that. The world's not ready for her. In the first century, you don't accept a woman's testimony in a court of law. You can only accept a man's testimony. Because in that ancient world, men were seen as more credible than women. Is that not hilarious? (laughs) This is why the disciples in Luke 24 think she's delusional and say she's delusional. By the way, just a little aside, let's just move aside. I just wanna talk to, to anybody right now who you're seeking the Lord but you don't know about the Gospels. I just wanna talk to you intellectually for 60 seconds. People say all these stories are made up. I promise you, If you're going to make up a story trying to convince people Jesus is the Son of God, you would do it differently than this. If you're trying to get everybody to believe how credible this story is, the last thing you're gonna do is make a woman the first witness of the resurrection. That's like me standing up and telling you something's factual because I was on the website TMZ a few minutes ago. You gotta do your research. Nobody's gonna make up a story like in this way. Jesus though, sends a woman, though the Greco-Roman world's not ready to accept the witness of a woman, though the Jewish world is not ready to accept the witness of a woman, he sends a woman, and they're not ready. But she goes anyway. You know why she goes? Because Caesar isn't ascending to the throne. The Jewish rabbis aren't ascending to the throne. Paul hasn't ascended to the throne. Moses hasn't ascended to the throne. Jesus has ascended to the throne. And even though the culture isn't ready, she still goes, because her Lord is not a culture-shaped God. Her Lord is Jesus revealed, the resurrected Jesus confirmed by the Spirit. She goes, though the culture's not ready for her. She goes, and she testifies. Do they believe her? No, but that's okay. It's our job to do what he calls us to do and then trust him to do what only he can do. He shows up later, just like they talked about in communion. He shows up later and manifests to them in power what she had already declared in word. This is a partnership. Over and over you see in the Gospels, you have people testifying and then the Lord showing up later and manifesting to confirm that word. You do what he calls you to do and trust him to do, what only he can do. So she says, I've seen the Lord. I think about this, we have a neighbor across the street from us, beautiful woman, 52 years old. She and her husband moved there a few years ago, Jewish lady. They moved in, her husband's British, he's a chef was a chef at the time, the lead chef at the Crescent Hotel in downtown Dallas. They move in across the street from us. I love to reach out to them. Amen. no. (laughs) Mm. But my wife invited her to our Christmas candlelight services a few years ago. And the woman responded to us both, thank you, but I'm Jewish. And I'm like, that's okay, I follow one too. I follow a Jew. She kind of (laughs) laughed. So they came and then they started coming every week, and I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and they're reading through the Gospel of Luke, and they're starting to have dinner in our home, and we're having dinner with them. And By the way, you really got to believe in the mission of God to cook for the lead chef at the Crescent Hotel, but my wife is doing it. Why? Because she knows where Jesus is seated, and he has authority even over chefs. She can, he can anoint her meals, you know. He cooked them breakfast. So after about six months, one day she's over to eat something with us and her husband's not there and we're around our island in the kitchen and Tara's cooking and I'm next to her and this woman says, can I ask you a question? I go, sure. She's like, I've just i been reading through the Gospel of Luke, I've been listening to you preach, I've gotta know, how did Jesus die a second time? Never been asked that before. How did Jesus die a second time? Well, uh, I haven't gotten to it yet, but in Acts, it just says he ascended, or you can just think he kind of disappeared into the invisible realm, the realm of the heavenlies. And so she's like, "Oh," and I said, "I take Acts like you take Exodus. I take Acts as the Word of God, like you take Exodus, and the Torah is the Word of God." And so I, that's what that's what happened. She's like, "So he he didn't die like Lazarus." She'd been reading her Bible. Yeah, I'm assuming Lazarus died again. I went, yeah, he got the raw end of the deal. He had to come back, you know, let his testimony speak for a while. Then die again. That's a raw end of the deal. I said, no, he didn't die. She leans across our island and she can't even say it out loud. She's embarrassed to say it. It's just three of us in the house, just her, my wife and I. So she looks across the island. She goes, so he's, he didn't die. I went, no, he didn't die. So he's said yeah he's alive (laughs) he's alive I said now the problem is there are times when all of us as followers are living like he's not alive so that's what confuses you but he's alive he really is alive she's like that's some crazy story I go I know so we just kept testifying and wouldn't you know it Jesus, in his own way, came to manifest himself to her over the next year, wound up baptizing her in a small group swimming pool, her daughter, and then the Lord uses her to reach our neighbors to the left of us, and they were baptized this past Easter. I'm not kidding you. Our role is to testify, to live with people saying, this is some crazy story, and just to hang there until Jesus does what only he can do. And that, by the way, goes with believers who are in seasons of doubt. Thomas, who they brought up, great point. He missed the email, apparently, about the worship gathering because all the disciples were present in John 20 when Jesus showed up, showed him his hands and his feet, but Thomas wasn't there. Then they tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord, which is the same annoying thing Mary said. And Thomas is like, I'm still not believing it. I don't care what Mary says. I don't care what you say unless I get the same treatment you got and get to see his hands and feet. I'm not gonna do it. Jesus wasn't in the room when he said this. But he was, but he wasn't. (laughs) And they're right, a week later, after Thomas says that, Jesus shows up and meets Thomas. He allows him to take a few steps by sight so he can continue the journey by faith. But a week later, do you know? So they're with him for a week and he doesn't believe them. Do you have any idea what it's like to be in a relationship with people who don't believe you when it comes to the most important matters of life that you're convicted about? I've seen people kick people out of church for less. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. And he's still with them. A few years ago, my son and I went out to uh, the Redwoods of California. We spent some time in the Bay Area, beautiful area. And and we're out there and we're touring the redwoods in California. And you know, in Texas, I grew up in Texas. We have, you know, mesquite bushes or trees, you know. You know. But out there, you're stunned by these things that are giant, hundreds of feet in the air, trunks as thick as all get out that you can drive a small car through. Some of them, and we're listening to the horticulturalist and the forest ranger, and he's explaining to us these redwoods, how their roots don't go hundreds of feet deep. I thought they did, but actually they're quite shallow. They just stretch out hundreds of feet, and they intertwine with the roots of other redwoods around them. And so just underneath the soil, there's this concept, there's this complex webbing of roots where their roots are inextricably intertwined with one another, and they have this root net that then holds each other up when the gale force winds of storm and doubt go blowing through the trees century after century. You'll see oak trees blown over after 100 years in Texas. You'll see redwoods still standing after 700 years. The interesting thing is the largest redwoods of all are never standing alone. And so when you hear talk about connection table, when you hear talk about being a part of a community, and giving yourself a chance to reach out your roots because one of the roles of the body of Christ is to allow our roots to intertwine with one another so we can hold each other up in between the time you hear the testimony and the time Jesus shows up and allows you to take a few steps by sight so you can continue the journey by faith. We hold each other up. When Mary's day began that day, she arrived to find an empty tomb in the dark, and by the end of it, she's seeing everything in a whole new light. The resurrection of Jesus did not change her world immediately. It changed how she saw the world, how she saw herself, how she saw her past. You gotta wonder, after Jesus died and she's at the tomb, before she encounters him, did she wonder if the demons were gonna come back now that he's dead? but now that she sees them and she knows those demons are gone, he's seated. So a few Sundays ago, it's Easter Sunday, I show up at our South Campus, our Farmers Branch Campus. I want you to see this picture uh, somebody had decorated a cross in front of our campus for Easter, if you guys have got that picture. Thank you so much. Beautiful cross, I hadn't seen it before. Somebody came along and they, they adorned this cross in beautiful, live flowers, and it just captivated me. And so I took a picture of it that Easter morning and, and I met with our elders, we meet uh, for about an hour before service every Sunday and we pray over the services and I'm praying with our elders and some of the team in a room that overlooks the courtyard where this cross is, kinda to the side of this cross. And so we're all praying, and I I look up and look around in the prayer, because it's my job to make sure everybody else's heads are bowed. So I'm the sheriff. See, not really. But I couldn't help, but I, I look around. I'm looking around at this prayer, and we're praying, and then I look out the window that over... Looks, this cross. It's got shutters, but the shutters are open. I can see the cross. Nobody can see me that I'm peering out the window that's out there. And family after family are taking pictures in front of the cross. And what's crazy is I've been there 23 years. This is the campus where Michael was on staff. This is the campus where Michael met Larissa, where they came to get this campus And I've got all these memories of this campus and I'm in this room looking out on this courtyard and I see all these families and I know some of their stories They're with their little kids who have no idea the stories of their parents and grandparents. I know the stories of sobriety and addiction being broken. I know the stories of people being healed of cancer. And I know the stories of other people who've buried people too young, and yet they've gone on in a resilient hope in Jesus. I know the stories of marriages that have been reconciled and restored beyond affairs. And I'm looking at all these families who have no idea that I'm an Easter voyeur, looking at them out the window. And I just just get choked up. And they're all taking pictures and then they peel out and then there's this one dude, 35, he's a single man. He stands in front of the cross by himself. Some dude's taking a picture of him. And I know who this guy is, 35 years old. And, and, and as soon as that guy gets done taking the picture and then peels off, that guy stays at the cross and he turns and he faces it. He doesn't know anybody's watching. He doesn't know I'm just inside that window and they're watching him. And he kisses his hand and applies it to the center of the cross. I was done. I was cooked when that happened. Because that man's name is Andrew Pope. And three years ago, Andrew should have died in a horrific accident. And the Lord spared him and has rebuilt his body, and more than that, rebuilt his heart. And he is a different person at 35 years of age. And all I could think is a blooming cross is so appropriate. Life coming from death. It's hard for us to appreciate that picture. The death of Jesus is ugly. Really, to better convey it, I, maybe I should put an electric chair and adorn it in flowers, and you'll get the paradox of the gospel. But a blooming cross is so appropriate. I'll leave you with one last image, and we're gonna pray back to Mary where the beginning of the story is. So she's, she's in the tomb, and she sees two angels, and they're seated, one at the head of where Jesus' body used to be, and one at the foot of where Jesus' body used to be. There's a whole lot of sitting, by the way, going on in this story. And they're sitting there where, her body, where his body used to be, back to where I was now earlier in the most holy place. So you'll walk into the most holy place and there is kept the Ark of the Covenant. And on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant are two angels. Arranged to face each other. One at the head, one at the foot. (laughs) And the high priest takes blood and sprinkles it over that lid in between those two angels to atone for the sacrifice of the sins of Israel. That lid is called the mercy seat. Remember the most holy place being pictured as the garden. And now Jesus in a garden tomb was kept in a tomb and now he's gone and here are two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, as if to confess on a whole nother layer of truth, this is the mercy seat, it's over, his dead body, now risen. Today, you can really be with him in paradise. So my word is this, the mercy seat is open. That's what we've been doing this whole time. The mercy seat is open. In fact, I just wanna ask you to go ahead and be standing right now.